Hey everybody! Welcome, welcome your 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 little ears here. Um, wow, boy, lots to um, somehow connect here for me, and maybe not. Like, do you really need me to? Do I need to talk about every time where I'm coming from? Um, for whatever reason, it does feel like it matters. But I wanted to like integrate into the episode before we before we get carried away here me i mean not you you're just sitting there waiting to get affected um probably (laughs) or not you're waiting to just not be affected but um i'm seeming to be the person that need to make some decisions at this point uh because i'm recording something for you to welcome you into this episode that i'm loving to share with you so first of all, welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast. My name is Ned Buskirk. I'm your host for this Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. And I just want to say thank you for listening. If you're listening for the first time, thank you so much. It seems there is some growing audience community happening out in the world. Um, kind of strange and wild, uh, but also so cool to have this piece of You're Going to Die connect to new community and and I mean globally. Um, we keep getting these emails that Belgium is really loving the podcast. And Nick Jana, our producer, was at the grocery store and someone recognized his voice from this friggin' thing. What? Um, and I'm not surprised. I guess I'll just say that. You know, I want to be like grateful and humbled that you're taking time to listen to what we're throwing out there. Um, but I also think, you know, in a way after 10 plus years of doing this, uh, that you're going to die connects to the people that need it and know it maybe even unconsciously, uh, when they find out about it, uh, what is that thing? There's something there I want to find out more about. And I think the podcast is offering that access point here too. So that's just a little bit of that. And I'm going to try to keep this intro tight. Like I always say, I'm going to, and then I don't, (laughs) That's a song, um, but I but I'm gonna try real quick. I because I, I, I'll get to talk about some more of this stuff later. So for now, for the purposes of the intro, I just want to say I'm feeling so grateful to be alive and so good to be in my life here right in this moment. I just feel clear and settled after a lot. And I'll just say that. Our organization has a program called Alive Inside. It's our prison program. It's what gets me into San Quentin every week to work with an organization called the Brothers Keepers, peer support in prison suicide prevention, Uh, community just taking care of community. Then I get the honor of facilitating that group every week with some amazing human beings, a a human being, amazing team, and all the community in there that is really where I do so much of my learning, uh, especially about the prison system and the community in there, what it means to make a life of meaning 
living in that context and living through the things that led to them being there. And then also, we do a lot of other stuff with our prison program. This last weekend was our third trip to Ohio, which I haven't ever researched this, but I did hear at some point that there are more prisons in Ohio than any other state. But I just know that it's there's a lot. And we've gone a couple times before into a couple prisons. Um, well, one prison, Marion Correctional Institution, was the focus of a, our last two visits. This third visit, though, we didn't go into Marion, but we went into London Correctional Institution outside of Columbus, and we went into a women's prison in Marysville. And we did our Alive Inside, which if you know you're going to die is like beginning. If you've been listening to the show and if you know you're going to die, maybe your first version of it was our open mic. And that's what Alive Inside is. It's an open mic to hold people in the conversation of death and dying and mortality and grief and loss. But Alive Inside is for the prison context and that community. After we went into the prisons, one night, Thursday night, we did one prison, and the next morning we did another. And then we drove to a place called Bellwether Farm, and we did a retreat for the exonerees that we've been doing about a year of work with, making room for grief for them and their partners. Exonerees, if you don't know, are human beings that got incarcerated for something they didn't do. So the guys there probably their time served equates to something like 50 to 100 years um, of incarceration, innocent human beings. So you can imagine the complexities of grief and trauma and loss. And so we did a retreat for them out in this idyllic middle of Ohio farmland nature context. We did that in collaboration with the Ohio Innocence Project. And then on our way out, the last day in Columbus, we did kind of like a re-entry event with Think Make Live Youth, uh, an organization in Columbus supporting youth, keeping youth uh, healthy and connected in community, trying to keep youth out of prison. Um, and also uh, the other program we did that event with and the two events in prison during that trip, the ones I mentioned at the start of the trip, the organization we did that with is the Horizon Prison Initiative, which is a in-prison community program. Uh, you'll see more if you want to through the links in our show notes. There's a lot I'm throwing at you here, but we also included in that last event was us um, sharing that space with Death Penalty Action, which is an organization keeping people from getting killed by the death penalty. So needless to say, it was a lot of a trip, dense 72 hours, almost like literally when we land all the way, really, we landed, we started this stuff, and we did it until we left. And then back into life here in San Francisco, back into San Quentin this week. So I, it just feels kind of like important for me to share that uh, as like where I'm coming from. And also just a chance to share a little more of what you're going to die is up to. This podcast comes from our nonprofit. And um, we have a lot of programs and events and concerts that we do. And the prison program is 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 what I'm speaking about now. And so, you know, maybe how I'm feeling. I feel grateful. I feel alive. Uh, I'm so glad to have had the honor of being in all those contexts and getting here to share it with you a little bit. 
connecting this episode with that. And I think the easiest way to do it is just to say, Reverend Bodie B, like kind of out the gates in this conversation, you're going to hear the simple version of what I believe we are most committed to offering, which is a deep listening. And, and, and Bodie B would define that as a love, like offering what kind of love is needed. Um, for me, the love I think is needed with these communities is a deep listening love, a presence of being, a paying attention. That's what I kept coming back to is just like all these contexts, I would just say some version of we get to pay attention to each other here. We get to pay attention to each other here like we need more of, not just in prison, but in the world, in all of our lives. Someone that would pay attention to you like you're paying attention to me now. I mean, maybe you're not. (laughs) Maybe you're driving and someone almost just hit you. You need to be careful. Pay attention to the road. But hey, that's a good example of why it matters. Pay attention. It saves lives. And uh, I'm not saying that anything we did saved any lives, but I wonder, especially thinking about the suicide prevention stuff, you know, what we need in community is anyone paying attention to any level of distress and trauma and crisis that our community is going through and that it is possibly, it can be all of our work to do that. And that's a commitment I have, knowing that we all can't maybe do it. It's too much. It's too much trauma. It's too hard. It's hard enough to live through our own lives. But I believe that that doing this with others makes my life deeper and richer, slowly, gradually, getting me more and more alive, more and more in my like being here, wholly and fully. And so why this conversation with Reverend Bodhi B is just perfect for me landing after that trip and getting to share this uh, episode next um, is that I think a lot of what he shares in this conversation connects to why we went on that trip to Ohio, why I go into San Quentin every week, why we do the events that we do coming up. We're doing an open mic. It's just knowing that like there's community that needs that kind of connectivity Not because it's like, we're producing a show and we hope to sell out and we'll make some money. It's like, no, we just want to keep being together like that. I need it. And so this podcast, I hope in a way gives you that. I know it's like, you're the one listening, but I I think there is a verse. (laughs) I got a theory that like, I'm listening to you here. Like I'm listening to me and the way I feel emotional and the way that my heart feels after everything I just been through. And I'm listening from there to like you, like, what do you need to hear? Like these guests, like, what can we say in conversation that matters? Not knowing for sure it's worth any of your while, (laughs) but, um, again, based on what it seems is, is like a measurements, the little measurements we have for the podcast, you're listening and, and we're deeply grateful for that. Just, just to even matter enough to be like, I'll listen to your podcast, you know, like that's, that matters so much. So thank you. And let's just get into this conversation after what I promised would be a short introduction that I think is probably 10 minutes long. But I'm going to let Reverend Bodie B do the most, the rest of the talking here. Reverend Bodhi B is an ordained minister in a Sufi lineage. He's a funeral director, executive director for Doorway and Delight, end of life and bereavement counselor, founder of the Death Store on Maui, Hawaii, casket maker, off the grid organic homesteader, 
and subject of a just-published book, Facing Death, A Conversation with Reverend Bodie B. He's also a husband, a parent, a grandparent, and a spiritual activist. And I think probably just letting you get to listen to him will give you all the knowing you need, at least for now. And then check out the show notes for all the other links to find out more definitively of what he's up to in the world. But thank you so much. Feels so good to have gone through what I've gone through and to get here to introduce you to this episode of You're Going to Die the Podcast with Reverend Bodie B. Listening, listening itself is a, I mean, we're not a good listening culture. Uh, very few people are good listeners. A lot of people have the wound of uh, never having really been heard or listened to. Uh, sometimes I think the loudest person in the room is somebody with that wound of no, nobody listens to me. My parents didn't really stop and listen to me. And we want to be listened to. And we all want to be heard. We all want to be seen and valued. Um, we all want to be really loved. And like, like sometimes the, the only question to ask is, what does love look like in this moment? Mm. And sometimes, a lot of times, it's nothing to do. Mm. There's nothing to do here. And, and, and if you understand what unconditional, complete acceptance and love looks like and feels like, of course, if you have a dog, most everybody probably knows what that is. Yeah. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know, a lot of people have never experienced that unless they've had a pet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest gift you can give a dying person is mm-hmm. to love them mm-hmm. and, and see past the burning house, as I said, and, 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 and support them uh, to do the work of completing a life and coming, coming into peace. Uh, I, I don't relate to rest in peace. I think a lot of us get, are going to get reassigned pretty quickly. Mm. Okay, uh, yes. You know, you know, a lot of us are needed, and we'll keep, we'll keep coming back. Mm. Hopefully I get a nice um, beachfront in Tahiti for a while before. <laughs> um, um, but leaving in peace, I think that's, what, that's a lot about the work I do mm. here at our funeral home and in our counseling and, and in our trainings is, you know, how, how do we help people um, come to peace in terms of, meeting their de- dying like what is dying well mm-hmm. you know I, I as a hospice volunteer for years i didn't see much dying well i saw people in resistance to their own dying and or ignoring their own dying or you know or in denial of their own dying and very few people were, were in not just acceptance but embracing the truth of what was happening and meeting it in a in a in a real way, in an authentic way, in an honest way, which wasn't always uh, fairies and unicorns. Uh, in fact, it rarely was, but yeah. um, but people willing to do the work. Uh, as, and of course, most of the work is about relationships. It's about relationship to self, relationship mm-hmm. to community, and relationship to a God or the holy. And, and I, I use those words as placeholders for something that isn't a word. Um, so and there's a lot of work there, and um, we all we're, we all have a trail. Uh, every one of us are making a trail every day behind us, and mm. and if you're fortunate, your trail is be absolutely beautiful, mm-hmm. and you know crystal beautiful, you know through the woods kind of thing. And 
but a lot of people have potholes in that trail of of of, of work they need to. That's probably going to show up when they're in their dying time. Yeah, and sure enough, uh, how often do we hear, uh, please call my son, he's 6,000 miles away, but I need to talk to him before I die. Yeah. And, and maybe the son gets there, maybe the son doesn't get there in time, and maybe the son's not even willing to come. Um, but all of those potholes seem to want to show up. Uh, I, I remember somebody owed somebody 100 bucks from 20-something years ago, and I doubt that person who the money right. would go to was, you know, but there was, there yeah. was, it showed up, right? It showed up and, um, and that, and that's, that's how, that's a real, that's a story. That is something that you experience. Yeah, with absolutely. Oh absolutely. Yeah. And, um, it cause all that stuff shows up and, and, uh, and amazingly, and I was actually quite shocked and surprised at first, uh, how many people want to want God to forgive them. Uh, be, uh, in order for them to die um, without being completely in anxiety and fear. Mm. Um, um, I was quite shocked to find that out. And uh, and these are not horrible people. These were not murderers or, you know, uh, these were good people. Um, but there's, and, and, and my God is an all-forgiving God. So uh, for me, it's never about um, trying to get God to forgive us. It's It's more about overcoming this the self-loathing and self-hatred and self-judgment that really permeates uh, Western culture. We're not, we're not good enough. We did something wrong. Um, and now, now we're going to die and we're really going to catch it at the end for all the horrible thoughts we had in our lives. And who hasn't had a horrible thought in their lives? And yeah. I mean, how many of us go, oh, man, if my friends knew that thought, nobody would be my friend. And, and of course, sometimes they're not even your thoughts. You know, you know who, but we get stuck on this notion of. I think that's why now I meet more and more people that are more afraid of dying of Alzheimer or having Alzheimer's and degenerative brain diseases than actually dying, because we're so, you know, we're so identified with the, the thinking me. Mm. Uh, yeah, and that's it's understandable. Um, sure, and and oftentimes that's the last thing uh, I do this exercise with people in terms of what they're willing to let go of before they just it's no longer considered a life for them, like sexual function, for example, or incontinence, or a losing losing body parts, or losing friends or losing roles or losing the ability to do things you love to do, you know, on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And and oftentimes the thing that people want to have at the very end is the ability to connect with the people around them. Mm. Not always. Some people, it's their money. And uh, wait, 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 wait. Bodhi, often, I'm sorry, sometimes the, so first of all, what this reminds me of is when we were having our first child, we did an exercise with a doula who had us do a bunch of index cards. And it was like, what do you want your child's birth to be like? And we had to give them up. You know, we did a whole bunch of these cards and we had to give them up. She just kept making them give us up after we, after we'd done like 15 of these cards. And then of course, you know, the last card is this, like, I just want my baby to be here with me, you know, like I'll give up all the hospital. It wasn't a home birth or, you know, fill in the blank. And so the last thing, you know, for everybody was like, I want my baby to be healthy and with me, you know, and even that sometimes we have to let go of, but it was just this exercise and kind of preparing people at the home birth context to like, let go. Sometimes things take you to the hospital or you have to get epidural or whatever. And so, um, anyway, I'm thinking of, yeah, it really was, it stuck with me and it's hitting right now. Cause suddenly it's like, Oh, to even have that on the end of life, 
your fill out 20 index cards. What are you really willing to let go of? Like if you had to, what would you? And what I, I want to just check in, like there's some people who money is the last card. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wow. think there's a funny saying that goes, he died penniless. Mm. Seemed like good timing. <laughs> Well, maybe not for the relatives or the kids. Um, Well, I guess uh, that sense it's that kind of is what that's wrapped up in. Right. Maybe no people don't want to, don't want to run out of money before they die. That's Mm -hmm. a big fear for a number Mm -hmm. of people, Mm -hmm. Um, which is, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm laughing, but just in, in our culture, we're talking about like ways we've been influenced and raised, not just by our family, but by a culture that these things are, instilled in us like that it matters that much um but well, it also, goes with it goes with um this so many people say i don't want to be a burden mm-hmm. i don't want to be uh, the, mm-hmm. i don't want to be a burden and i don't want to lose control mm-hmm. and um most of us are control freaks to one degree or another oh, man i am uh, we think we know what's going on that might be the biggest defense we have and and uh, it's we, we we are probably u- using so much of our own energy to just hold on to a sense of I'm okay and I know what's happening. And um, of course, of course that's up in the air right now because it's a little more apparent to a lot of people that we have no idea what's coming or what's going on. You feel uh, more than ever that that's kind of a shared experience. But in, in, in my, in my lifetime, mm-hmm. it is um, given, given what's happening on the planet, uh, environmentally, politically, yeah. Uh, what's happening in America in terms of the politics. Uh, we have a war going on with people saying some crazy stuff. Um, you know, this whole notion about um, scarcity and inflation and, mm-hmm. and then there's COVID on top of that, which uh, made it, made it apparent to most everybody that you could die from your friend or your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it didn't, in my view, like somebody said to me on one of these, interviews uh, it is death more does it make more death present i was like well death was always present but uh, there's more an awareness around it because of what's happening and so yeah i would say it's much much more uh waiting for the sh- next shoe to drop kind yeah. of thing or the shit to hit the fan kind of thing and, mm-hmm. and so consequently there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear and anxiety and even dread and so uh if there if there's more anxi- anxiety in the communal space then people who are already anxious are more anxious mm-hmm. and people who are angry are more angry mm-hmm. and people who tend to act out in in violent and strange ways well you, we see there's more and more of that actually happening uh you know reflecting kind of a breakdown in a certain level mm. and so that's what makes the work you and i are doing even more important to hey we're, you're all going to die now what do you want to do about that Mm. Uh, and there are lots of options as far as what you want to do about that and and we see that acting out all over the place and we're in the we're in the culture that's probably historically the most advanced culture for to help you not think about it and avoid the whole thing and see what's on netflix or or whatever it is right and uh and keep checking out to see uh who what your favorite movie star did today Mm -hmm. um so 
it's, it's easy to drop out. And um, it's interesting because I did have COVID and fortunately it was a mild case and mostly it was fatigue, but it did something to my brain. And apparently it's, it's done that to a lot of people. It, it does something to the brain. And I went into a really deep despair. And that's, mm. not, that's not something I, I go, I understand it. And I understand why there's a lot of despair out there and why I meet a lot of young people that just go, what's the point? Uh, it's too big. It's too immense. What difference could anybody make? And I went into that place and just didn't care about anything and mm. um it's like fuck it let's party kind of thing and, yeah. and a lot of people have adopted that strategy uh i have grandchildren and that's reason enough uh that you know i keep i'm that's uh, i'm not around them because i'm out here doing this work to hey hey folks um hey folks yeah, yeah, you know, sometimes I've actually, uh, whether it's real or not, and it doesn't matter to me whether it's real or not, because it's real to me that I hear my great, great, great grandchildren or some, some kids out there calling me mm. and they say, Grandpa. And every time I repeat this, Ned, I get chicken skin on my, they say, Grandpa, Grandpa, mm -hmm. uh, in the midst of the horror and the madness and the injustice and when the world was on fire. What were you doing, Grandpa? Mm. So I live in response to that question. And uh, the death piece came on through my ministry because my ministry is about bringing people into uh, living in the presence of God and, and acting, um, acting, become a vehicle for the holiness to, and the sacred to um, create beauty, really, create mm. beauty. Mm -hmm. And... I saw I and at the same time I was being I was counseling people who were dying and I didn't feel qualified or skilled to address that I didn't mm. have enough experience in that whole world and that's when I chose to become a hospice volunteer mm. and then and that was transformative itself just being trained as a hospice volunteer mm -hmm. and then they sent me into homes just like they send you into homes to sit <laughs> with dying people and I never sat in homes with dying people. So it was like going to the school of how do people actually do this thing mm. um, and learning how they did it and didn't do it and refused to do it and um, met their dying time. And that was kind of the beginning. And then I saw that um, no matter how often, I mean, death is all over the place. You can, everywhere you look on the news and uh, we've been hearing about it for years and it's in all the movies pretty much. And uh, it doesn't seem to phase us. We're kind, of, we're kind of used to it. We kind of built up a little armor thing around. We could hear about a thousand people dying there and a hundred people dying there. And we could see, now we see the, uh, the um, people's video on their phones of what's happening in Ukraine. And, and to a certain degree, we're fairly armored because we need to protect ourselves. But it seems like when you find out your best friend just died or, you, or your best friend found out they're dying or you find out you're dying or have a terminal illness, something seems to happen to almost all of us. And it shakes us right into that zone you and I were talking about at the mm -hmm. beginning. It shakes us out of the bullshit into the preciousness and fragility of life mm -hmm. and being alive and it shakes us into what's really most important which for most people again is our relationships mm -hmm. to self and other and to god and so then those two things kind of lined up for me and then i saw how much work needed to be d uh, done in this whole area of how do we approach our own dying mm -hmm. how do we care for dying people and then I, and then i connected that up to how do we show up for the dying in the world. So now I teach all three of those. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all really the same piece, as it turns mm-hmm. out. That's why I teach all three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, that the that the work of transforming consciousness and using death as a vehicle to help transform consciousness, just like the name of your podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my, everybody says, "Okay, Bodhi, we know what you want to say. You want to say we're all going to die and we don't know when." That's your line, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's funny. I went to. A, I don't get invited to that many birthday parties anymore <laughs> because uh, every time we all sing, we all sing "Happy Birthday," and then Bodhi shows up and he goes, "And who knows how many more?" <laughs> yeah. And um, everybody goes, oh yeah, Bodie, yeah, thanks, Bodie. Um, <laughs> um, and so then, though, then that those two threads really actually came together for me, and I, I feel so fortunate. Something mm-hmm. called me into this work, yeah. to, oh, I, to uh, not only transforming, hopefully helping transform consciousness in a big way, but also helping shift how we care, how we care for dying people, how we approach our own death. Uh, how how we may, how we make caring for dying people a community uh, uh, and sacred practice rather than something we hand over to strangers and experts. Mm. So when we came out of the first two prisons that we visited in Ohio that Thursday night and the Friday morning, we went to that Bellwether farm I told you about and had that retreat. And it it was so significant for me um, in all the ways that cracked me open and kept cracking me open. I was just continually pride open to a point like I couldn't even stop receiving what was being shared, but but. I digress. I'm not going to go on and on about this. I just want to say we landed at that farm after being inside those two prisons and doing those events, feeling the rawness and the emotion and those human beings, those teachers, whether they were trying to be or not. And then to go to this farm and live the contrast It's always like what strikes me is that I walk out of that prison, any of the prisons, and I see out of San Quentin, the Bay, San Francisco Bay, or in Ohio, after our first visit to Marion, we walked out and there was a rainbow and the rain pouring down on our face, mixing with our tears. And during this trip to come out of these two prisons and then go to this farm to be with these exonerees who had spent some of them like 10, 20 years inside remember for things they didn't do and to wake up in the morning and see that thin layer of fog and the sun rise up 
over those pastures and through those chicken sounds and crickets at night sitting by the fire with some of these guys listening to the night looking up at the stars a sight which one of them told us he hadn't seen yet since he'd been out i mean can you imagine what you're getting to do right now where you are right now and it is that like what does this have to do with death and dying but what i tell all that community and what I think about the cancer patients and the hospice patients, but all the grief community, the grieving we do is that it's being at an edge. And right there, what matters gets crystallized. And that's what happens when I get to be with the prison community or community affected by the prison system. I get to be with their knowing and their teachings about what matters. Again, they're not trying to teach, but you just listen you get it. And so what I wanted to do for our little mid-show moment here is just give you a little taste of the sounds from that farm. You'd be like, I got crickets outside my house. All right. Well, you don't have crickets outside your house score to music from Nick Jana. So I want to give you some farm sounds here, stuff I listen to. And I asked Bellwether Farm, our friend Isaac, who runs the space out there to send me a bunch of tracks. Because when I was there, I just forgot to record. I was planning on recording these sounds, and I just forgot. And so he, he sent some to me, and we're going to share them with you here as a chance for you to just like close your eyes if you can and settle in and be held by that farm and its sounds and the music of our producer, Nick Jana. <laughs> Thank you. 
could also tell you that my dad suddenly died in a car accident a week before I graduated high school. Mm. And the most potent thing that happened around that was at this big Jewish cemetery outside of New York City, where you saw gravestones for as far as you could see. Beyond that, there was a giant auto graveyard with piles and piles of flattened, rusted old cars. And you could see it from the from the graveyard. Yeah. Now, oh honestly, my, my brother and sister didn't see that. So I either hallucinated it or not, but, and uh, I didn't, matter. I didn't. Yeah. And yeah. Then, so then, uh, so then the, um, as they're lowering my father's casket into the ground, this giant crane is lowering a rusted no car onto the pile. Now, I want to tell you, I was 17 and a half. I had no language or understanding about what I was seeing, but mm -hmm. I was seeing it and it was registering so that 50 years later, mm -hmm. that's like, that was a powerful mm -hmm. teaching for me, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know... You know, that, that, that happened right around when I went into college, and, co and I'd been geared since kindergarten as a good Jewish boy. I was going to be a lawyer or a doctor or, and go to college. And when I got to college, it was the Vietnam War, and uh, we were starting to smoke pot. And uh, uh, I, I found those things much more interesting than the advanced trigonometry class I was in. And uh, one, one day I looked, out the win I looked at the blackboard, and there were all these equations on the blackboard. And I looked out the window and can hear all these beautiful people playing music and passing out uh looking for signatures for against the vietnam war and um it looked more I, that was like a in that was another turning point for me i wanted to be down there mm -hmm. the stuff on the blackboard no longer made any sense to me mm -hmm. and th and that led me to drop out of school and head from new york to, to put my thumb out and go to oregon uh to live in a hippie commune because i i realized that what i really wanted to be was a hippie mm -hmm. and um i still am you know people ask me about <laughs> it um uh, and I'm proud to be a hippie because of what hippies, what the people in that era did in terms of changing the culture in very many big ways that have been incorporated into organic farming. And there were no natural food stores uh, when I was a kid. Right. You know, all, all alternative medicine. Uh, of course, now the baby boomers are, are either watching their parents die or watching their friends die or dying. Mm -hmm. And so that's why there's, you see so much more happening in this particular field is the, what we do. A lot of us, what we touch, we change. Mm -hmm. And the, and the death piece was really ripe for change because, yeah. um, for so many reasons. Well, can I ask you real quick, the growing up as a Jewish boy, um, was it, were you highly practicing that or your family? No, not um, at all. Not okay. at all. In fact, in fact, I never got invited into where the jewels, uh, where mm. the jewels were. Right. Mm. It was it to me. And, and yeah, it was understandable. Right. I like that phrase. I get it was that. understandable yeah. in the fifties and sixties. Uh, uh, and in New York, most of those Jews, uh, were in shock from the Holocaust mm -hmm. and, pretty much everybody I knew had family who had died in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think at that point, the, the Jewish uh, temple, at least the one I went to, they wanted to be more American than Jewish. Mm. And so uh, I never really got to meet the cantor who was the guy who was, you know, had, the, had he was the holder of the essence of what it was. Mm. So it never really happened. So, mm. um, uh, you know, it's funny. I remember Ramdas telling me that uh, the, the Jews really um, kind of blamed him 
for the hundreds of thousands of Jewish kids that left the Jewish fold. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they mistakenly blamed him. The, uh, I, I already told you the reason why we left. We weren't invited into where it was really happening so we mm -hmm. could experience something mm. that wasn't just on a piece of paper or something. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I have a couple threads here. I, I don't, uh, I'll bring, I'll, I'll get to them all, but I, I'd like to come back to now that we've talked a bit about the journey. I'm wondering if you could spend some time being a little more, uh, sharing a little more details about what you're doing um, in Hawaii. Um, and uh, I, I know you kind of covered it a little bit, but maybe you could share a little more about like even the details of a day, you know, um, but whatever way you want to express what you're up to now um, with sure. your work would be Happy really to. awesome. Glad yeah. To. Thanks. Well, I'm on call as a 24 seven funeral director. Uh, I'm also um, being called on quite a bit to lead memorials and ceremony and funerals. Um, I, I'm really honored to, be called into that way because as as I described to you, uh, people are shaken up um, when somebody close to them dies, mm -hmm. and so when you're when you're in a space where there's 400 people and they're all having that experience right now, it's a to me it's a it's a beautiful and deep it opportunity be, yeah, for I feel that um, what what in terms of you know ch shifting shifting people's relationship to their own life really mm -hmm. um so can we uh, just pause there for a sec sure because it really matters to me i don't know why I'm, I'm i'm i'll figure out why i'm getting very emotional now i wonder if it's like something about my mom's memorial like a missed opportunity kind of you know because you just describe something that's possible not what happens every time. And so if we could sit with that a little more, um, I'm wondering if you could speak to what it means to make that, help make that, create that moment, like the needed medicine or whatever words you'd use, like that is possible, what you just described. And I think the emotion comes from, I, I do think that, you know, it's like my mom's memorial, you know, Episcopalian church, um, you know, hundreds of people. Uh, I was just grief stricken and probably unstoppable with the tears and the emotion, uh, probably scaring a lot of people. I wasn't trying to be any way. I was just completely grief stricken. And, and just as you can tell by now, you know, very inclined to just letting it out. Um, I, but I, I just, I appreciate that. Mm, about you? Thanks Bodie. But there's the way I've described it, which is we had that time and who knows really how rich and valuable and medicinal and, and precious it was really like, I almost can't remember. I didn't have anybody kind of really drawing it together. Like I imagine you can do. And I guess in a way I'm acknowledging what I suspect, which is part of what happens is, you know, when you have those hundreds of people together, your work is to get them to that as much to their own death as it is to be with the death that has happened. I don't know if that's the right wording, well, but I wonder you know, if you. So, sometimes I say, I want to tell you why we're here. And number one, we're here for the person who just died, who I, I'm going to assume is here 
or is available or is listening or is praying for us mm-hmm. or is asking for our mm-hmm. prayers or forgiveness. Yeah. And n- number two, we're here for the family so that the family feels supported here and in some ways held. And the third reason I would say we're here is for us as a community to have this experience together because this is what village building includes. It's not just coming together when we're all having a good time. If we don't include this piece, we've robbed ourselves and we're not building us a real community here. Mm. So most often now these things are called celebration of life. And sometimes that's a form of denial to me that we want to skip to the celebration of life without really honoring what happened. And oftentimes taking the time to grieve and mourn out loud about what did happen, Mm. especially if it was an untimely uh, death, um, et cetera. Yes. And we have to, and I tell people when they ask me to lead a memorial or a funeral, if it's one of those that we need to take some time before we go into the celebration of life. Um, now I go, now I go, I'm invi- invited to lead grief rituals and I've done a number of them on, Z- on zoom, uh, given where we are in the world, mm-hmm. um, in terms of, especially now when, I mean, if you're paying attention to what's happening, you must be grieving, mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of what is, what is at stake and the immensity of what we are losing so quickly, uh, that our, that our grandchildren may, may only see elephants in a picture book, for example, mm. or, or whether nature can survive or whether we can survive. Um, um, and then uh, at the same time, people have a lot of, like, like I, I just felt some grief from you that maybe didn't have the space or the time or the welcoming to grieve when it was more f- happening and fresh. Mm-hmm. And I, I meet a lot of people uh, at least as old as me who are grieving what they never got to grieve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or are still grieving. Like, uh, like a woman came to one of our groups who was grieving an abortion she had 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, we've mostly been grief illiterate. It's finally, it's finally now getting a little more airplay and um, how recognizing how critically important it is that, and now I teach about that love and grief are twin sisters, mm-hmm. um, that they come, to, they come together. Yeah. It's, it's funny too. Um, it's not funny at the time, but it's funny when I tell people that Leila and I facilitate, my wife and I facilitate weddings sometimes. What's her name? Leila. Mm-hmm. L e i l a h, and uh, and thirty. And sorry, years. she she's That's, um also one of the directors or on the board one for of the initial board members for yeah. She's Go also ahead. a minister, so sometimes we'll facilitate a wedding, hmm. and I don't always do it. I hardly ever do it, but if it's appropriate, I'll I'll say something like, "When you make vows to spend the rest of your lives together, you understand that it comes with the truth that one of you will likely witness the death of your partner." Right. Doesn't always go over great at a festive <laughs> well, wedding. When, you know? when does it not go over great? Like what happened? <laughs> can you just describe <laughs> that not going over great? Like what happened? You just can tell. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets really quiet and like the energy just kind of goes thud. <laughs> yeah, and the and the groom looks at me like, huh? Yeah. Something like that. You know? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. But well, that's but in a sense, that's part of yeah. what I do. Mm. It's part of what I do that I'm. Uh, I think of myself. Oh, you asked me what I do. Mm. So I'm a placeholder mm-hmm. in this community mm-hmm. that death is present. Right. That, that, I mean, if I do nothing else, uh, a lot of people know me as the death guy, which is, which is shorthand for death is present in the community. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that's, a, to me, a critically important piece mm-hmm. um, in terms of what I'm out here doing. And what, uh, so we run a nonprofit. Oh, I saw I, start, I was counseling. And then I, and then I thought, as again, uh, as so I was. Kind of after the, um, you hospice volunteered. I'd already been counseling and you'd been counseling and, through uh, your spiritual like yeah, work. Yeah. Yeah. Through a Sufi lineage that we're ordained in. Um, so I started sitting with dying people and grieving people and families of dying people. And uh, then I, I looked around to see what was happening in the funeral homes. There's two main funeral homes on Maui besides ours. Mm. And I went and looked at their caskets and I wanted to see what the most inexpensive casket was. I'm a bill, I'm a carpenter and a craftsperson. Mm. And the cheapest casket was like 1500 bucks and it came from China and it was particle board and, you know, toxic glue. And I thought, oh, I could make a really sweet little casket, uh, sell it for 500 bucks. Oh my gosh. Uh, Something like that. Mm -hmm. Really sweet pine box caskets. Um, now I'm starting to use recycled wood. And, mm. um, and then I found out I could be a funeral director in Hawaii. If I didn't embalm people, I could, I could take a test and get the uh, uh, Department of Health to train me. And I could be a funeral director fairly easily in Hawaii. And so mm. I said, oh, I want to be a funeral director. And that led to me going down to one of the funeral homes to introduce myself. And <clears throat> I wanted to... I wanted to um, contract out the use of their crematory. And that's when I found out I was a funeral home. Because mm-hmm. the, the owner of the funeral home said, you're a funeral director? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Recognized by the state of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. You sell caskets? Yeah, I actually make some really sweet caskets. Yeah. He said, you sell urns? I do now, but at the time I didn't. So I said, no, I could sell urns. And he said, you're a funeral director. And get out of here. You're competing with us. Mm. I was actually quite short-sighted because I don't, I don't have a crematory. So I send, I refer people to the other funeral home that get, gives people a discount because I refer them mm. to that. Um, but, but the cool part about the story was I went home and I said, guess what, honey? So we have a funeral home. <laughs> yeah. Just like that. Yeah, totally. I thought I had. I thought I had a little <laughs> office. I thought I had a little office where I was showcasing my caskets mm. and offering counseling and offering funeral director services. I was like, guess what, honey? We have a funeral home. And I mm. thought, well, if we have a funeral home, I, I want to revolutionize and reinvent what that is because the funeral home has a lousy reputation. Mm. Um, I was really close to uh, the, one of the hospices here and still am. And I talked to the executive director about somehow uh, interweaving hospice and the funeral home. And, and he looked at me and he said, are you crazy? Uh, hospice has a great reputation. The funeral homes have a horrible oh. reputation. Mm-hmm. And, and lots of people have really horrible uh, experiences of going to the funeral home. And, and these strangers basically uh, come up with why you're going to spend 10,000 bucks. And you don't, and you, and you, and of course, if you're in grief and you're in shock, 
well, uh, that's a pretty lousy place mm -hmm. to make a business decision. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people feel taken advantage of and have spent a fortune. And um, so I thought, well, I want to, ch I want to reinvent the whole thing. And so that's how we ended up uh, only nonprofit and green and green and sand certified green funeral home mm -hmm. in Hawaii. But what I did was I took the, I took the surf shop model and the surf shop model <laughs> You'll like this, Ned. Mm -hmm. Originally, the surf shop was just a bunch of guys in there making surfboards. Yeah. And in the front of the shop, there were surfboards. Yeah. <laughs> and slowly, the guys making surfboards went way in the back of the store or aren't even in the store. And now the store is all about the surf style and the surf look. Mm -hmm. And some of those stores don't even sell surfboards anymore. Mm -hmm. It's all about the surf whatever it is, the surf style. Or, yeah, the yeah. surf style. Right. I thought, I want to do that with the funeral home. I want to have a storefront. That's the death store. And that, and, and um, there was the storefront and you're getting ahead of me now. Oh, and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I had a vision of you <laughs> making your, making your uh, coffins and then like setting them up out front. That was like the beginning of your, uh, your surf store. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, so I wanted, so we wanted to have a store and I thought, okay, what's the, what's the store? And right away I was like, it's the death store. Mm -hmm. It's a or even even though people came to me and they said, Bodie, you're doing such amazing work. You can't call it the Why that? store. <laughs> uh, and so I, I just said, and they gave me hundreds of names I couldn't live with. Can you understand, um, by the way, that I deeply relate to that? I named something you're going to die. You know how often I like run into like, could you just make it nicer or kinder yeah, or right, more right. inviting? It's like, no, that's not the point. I didn't, I wanted to, I, I still might do it. I wanted to open up the, the uh, store next door here called dead people's stuff. Um, Let's be clear. That was the, I'm sure that was the original secondhand store. Yes. Right. Yes. So then I thought I'll call it the death store. And mm -hmm. people said that you're doing such amazing stuff, but you can't call it the death store. Mm -hmm. And they were, and they were probably right. I'm sure a lot of people were, I've heard people say I'd never I go know. into a store, yeah. but, but, but what I love about it. And even though I wobbled for a year thinking, yeah, I better change the name. Um, and I'm really glad I didn't. Mm -hmm. um, it's really is the death store. Mm -hmm. And, um, People from around the world have heard of the death store. You know, it kind of breaks through. We're so overloaded yep. with information. That's right. We're completely jaded, uh, but the death store somehow breaks through. Somehow. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, that's the, really, again, to speak from experience, you know, it's like, I, I just talk a lot. I share a lot about how you're going to die. Like it's an invitation as much as it is a uh, deterrent. And you just very clearly draw a line between a type of person who's like ready to go there, not even knowing what it means sometimes to go there. But as an example, like having the event, like the, the podcast is a result of a lot of, of history, but it started with an event called you're going to die poetry, prose, and everything goes. And I've always said, you know, part of what happens happens before the show occurs, which is people say yes to that. They buy a ticket to something called you're going to die already creates like what's possible there. You have a bunch of people coming to the death store, drawn to the death store in powerful ways because they're people that are open or wanting to know and not even maybe realizing all the time why, but like drawn and compelled. So then like you 
like, again, this going back to the edge and the no bullshit zone, creating a store space where like people walk in ready to like be cracked open and say the thing really that brought them there, the loss, the death, the grief, whatever it is. And now I'm getting ahead of, of you again. I'm sure you can not always, that not better a, than It's not me. always, it's not, I wish that were true, that people were ready as soon as they walked in. Sure. Uh, okay. I, there's a, I, we, there's a whole spectrum of who walks in. Sure. Some people are just flat out curious that, you know, mm -hmm. they think we're all in uh, black with white makeup uh, <laughs> or we're selling Halloween paraphernalia. I got to call and see if, I got to call to see if I stocked uh, skeleton <laughs> costumes. Yeah. I said, no, we're not quite that kind of story. Yeah, okay. let, me, let me tell you what we do. Yeah. So the, on the curious end, and then there's people who are, I want to dip their toe into, mm -hmm. uh, they want to come out of complete denial and they want to dip their toe right. into, maybe I could get a little closer mm -hmm. and they know this is a place they could come get a little closer. It's a very warm, welcoming environment. And because it's nonprofit, we're not selling anything and we have stuff for sale, but we're not in the sales. I'm not in sales. I'm in mm -hmm. ministry. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that people who are curious and then there are people who are dying and their families. And then there are a couple that walks in cause their son just died. So it's the, that's one of those, that's what makes we're open on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. um, that's as much retail as I can, I'm up for, but, mm -hmm. um, but it's just like that edgy place of, we don't know who's going to walk in at mm -hmm. any moment. Yeah from that whole spectrum and how and how can we be ready to meet whatever and then some people come in and uh, they'll start talking about stuff they had no idea they were going to talk about yes. just because you know they're comfortable they feel welcome yes uh, and again we're not selling anything and then they sit there and it's like like i remember specifically a, a dad and his daughter had come in thinking they were looking for an urn for his wife but in fact, then they start talking about his death and they're, and they're blown away themselves that they entered into that whole field, mm -hmm. right? Just sitting there. So that's what, that's what we do. You were there. Um, oh yeah I, was, I was, yeah. I was both watching the thing and trying to step away from it to give them the space to, mm. right? I know. But there, and um, so then I function as a funeral director and um, in terms of, and we get a call, we go pick up a body, we bring it back here. And behind me, we made this beautiful, what we call the water temple, which is this beautiful space with our big doorway uh, logo on the wall where we, where we wash bodies and uh, anoint bodies and dress bodies and oftentimes include the family. Yes. Uh, to participate. Uh, sometimes we, we go out and we bury whole bodies in the ocean and the family helps us wrap the body in the shroud for the ocean burial and um then they go out on the boat with us so mm. um i te and i'm teaching more so i'm um uh, a book just came out of, about me uh but it seems to be my work is uh, in the more in the realm of teaching and training mm. uh, which i which i love i love mm. who i am as a teacher mm. and i just mm -hmm. i just taught two courses through uh, eslin institute uh, online and that's how I heard about you the first time. Oh, good. Yeah. And then we'll, um, and then I go home and work in my garden and I have my beautiful wife and I have kids and grandkids that live on our land. Uh, so mm -hmm. I got it going. I got, I got it going and I live in the jungle with waterfalls and, yeah. uh, I, and so then I have a whole life outside of being the death guy, mm -hmm. even though I, keep, I stay close to my phone mm -hmm. because I'm on call and, mm -hmm. 
Um, let me ask you a question that's sort of been sticking with me since you shared the part about feeling the despair after COVID and what the impact it had on your brain. I'm wondering if you can say what you think cracked open there, you know, um, what your theories are. And then um, I think what called you back from that despair may have been your great, 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 great grandchildren. But I'm wondering if, if there's more to say well, about what pulled you um, from that display, if at all. It, just, and, and, it, and just, I, it, it was just like the COVID. It came and it went, right? Mm-hmm. A symptom of the COVID, and apparently mm-hmm. for a lot of people, is something, they go into a brain funk, mm-hmm. uh, right? And a number of people have shared that with me. Oh, yeah, my brain, I went into a totally funk, depressed, mm-hmm. dark. And so for me, it showed up as despair. And so it was just like the fatigue. It came, it went. Mm. And I was, I didn't have to do, actually, I didn't have the energy to do anything about mm-hmm. making it go away or, mm. or anything. Uh, I was just like, hey, who cares about anything? What's the point? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't care if I even do any more work in this, in this death work. And, and that was totally unfamiliar to you? Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. I've never mm-hmm. really gone there. I understand it, and I certainly have been with people in that place. Uh, I was just with somebody yesterday in that place. Um, you know, and How it's, do you understand- hold it's that? understandable. How do I hold that? Yeah, I mean, other than what I expect, really good deep listening. What, uh, but. what, is, what does love look like in this moment? Right? <laughs> That's the question. And, and yes, sometimes it's just about encouraging people to talk it out loud. Mm-hmm. To talk it out loud to where I'm not trying to fix it. I'm not trying to comfort them. Uh, maybe a little bit of comfort just, just by, uh, just by let, making sure they know I'm listening and I'm mm-hmm. responding and um, sometimes uh, speaking. You know, it's like another, another good listening skill is to be able to repeat back what you just heard. Mm-hmm. So it confirms to them that you mm-hmm. actually heard what you said. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's different for different people, but... Uh, how do I meet that and without going into any kind of my own resistance where I can't fully embrace that, right? And, of course, that's a, that there's a level of self-awareness around making sure I'm not backing away from something that could start to feel anything, annoying, mm-hmm. irritating, um, too much. You know, an exercise I often give to pe- groups of people is what, what blocks your compassion? If mm-hmm. compassion is the natural expression of our heart to reach out and be able to hold and love people, what gets in the way? And, you know, you can, you can guess a number of things that get in the way. You know, judgment, you know, distraction. Judgment's a big one. Well, if I, if I talk to that homeless person, they might want to come home with me. And uh, besides, they deserve whatever they, you know, whatever it is, whatever the judgment is. And then there's the, the, the fear of, well, what if they do want to come home uh, and they want, to, they want to have a relationship beyond me just giving them a few bucks? Mm-hmm. Um, then, then there's the distraction of, uh, gee, I'd really rather think about what's for lunch as an example of a distraction or, you know, et cetera. What I, I need mean, to buy next. Or, you know, yeah. you know every, everybody can come up with what gets in the way.
you can check out all the links in the show notes for Reverend Bodie B. I won't even try to list them here, but I'll give you links to his website, the organizations, the death store, the new book. Uh, you can find all that stuff in the show notes, but thanks so much to Reverend Bodie B. That um, was just the kind of conversation I wanted to work on for the next episode of our podcast after the things I just lived through, um, which I um, won't go into anymore because I did that plenty in the intro. Although, Nick, Jaina, yeah. did you have any questions? Uh, uh, yeah, actually, you know, I, several categories of guests that we seem to be having on the podcast. I would say death workers like Bodhi, um, musicians, uh, filmmakers, those are the general categories. Writers. Um, writers. They don't count. Uh, <laughs> hey, self-deprecating humor, everybody. Alert. I wonder if there was, I, I wonder if as you're talking to people, you feel differently as far as like, oh, I am a colleague of this person versus I am, uh, mm. you know, in a different industry or something. I, I, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, particularly yeah, totally. with Bodhi, like, do you feel like, oh, we're colleagues, we're in the same industry, or do you still feel like <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Lacking a certain uh, piece of paper that tells you that or something. Right. You know? No, um, not any less, less now than ever before. You know, I think there was a long stretch, even some of the early episodes where I'm talking with people like BJ Miller or Frank Ostaseski or Steven Jenkinson, mm -hmm. and I'm like feeling more of that, you know, where it's like, I'm not, am I maybe imposter syndrome, some version of that? Not, it, not yeah. significantly enough not to be able to have a good conversation with them, but maybe a little more years ago. Um, and now not as much. Uh, and I think with Bodie B especially, uh, I was listening to the interview, which is sometimes really cool when we do the interview and then we don't release the episode for months. And that's kind of what happened with his episode. It's been a little while. And so it's cool to get to return to that conversation and listen to it and forget that it's me talking with him. First mm -hmm. of all, forget a lot of what he said. And like I already told you, just kind of be receiving him in a way that I'm not sure I was even receiving him when we were in conversation together. Right. Um, but to answer your question in a way that connects to that, I had moments where I was listening to him thinking like, oh, yeah, that story, that's like what I went through, the, the specific version of it that I'm recalling now is when he talked about hospice volunteering, that mm. that's really one of the earliest access points I had to saying like, can I, I need to, I want to know this more, you know, and I think, you know, this story already, but when my mother-in-law died different in contrast from when my mom died, there was hospice involved. And that was, they were a huge deal. It was a huge, huge, huge resource and support in all the ways that I believe hospice can be isn't always, but mostly can be. And so knowing that I didn't want to become a social worker or a nurse, like the people that I was meeting when, she, when my mother-in-law was dying, um, I did talk to the social worker and it just, it was a conversation of like, is there a way for me to know this more or be involved? And I don't know if she said that the volunteer option was there, but I know that when we, we came back to San Francisco, Sarah, my wife and I, um, you know, Sarah's went to therapy at, uh, 
a hospice company here called Hospice by the Bay. And because of her connection to that, I found out through her and, and looking at their website that they had a volunteer option. And so all that is to say that he, the way Bodie B describes that, that's the beginning for him. He just he just started volunteering. I think he probably was doing, you know, based on what he shared, like a lot of stuff in terms of community. Um, but all, I was, too. And so with Bodie B in particular, and maybe in a way now that we're just kind of accepted and, and have 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 landed and am landing more and more. And like, this is my work. I didn't need to go to school to be a hospice nurse mm -hmm. or a therapist. Like, this is what I do. Um, really owning that more than ever, uh, coupled with like hearing him share and relating a lot to his story. You know, I think feel like listening to him, there was a lot moment, a lot more moments of me saying like, Oh yeah, I relate to the death store in the way I relate to you're going to die being an invitation to people, you know, a way that people say yes to it by walking through the door and already are like creating the conversation. And so with this particular example, I'd say it felt a little like on the level, but also like usual, I feel like for me, my default, I'm not saying it's a skill. I just say like automatically the listening is my learning and knowing there's ways he's in the world with the death stuff that I do think, wow, you know, I, I couldn't imagine, or I, uh, you know, it's so much more than I know I'll ever do or, and I feel the same way about, I think, you know, a lot of these, like you said, colleagues, but people that work in death and dying there, there may be, there's a way that I'm limited by what I can do more and more of. And so there's these other paths opening up that do fit a little more for me in the way that I introduced this episode, which is like what it means to be with community, not necessarily to be like an active organization or even a human being at the deathbed. Um, because I, ha I, I even haven't really been for a, a while because the pandemic really shut down all the volunteering options. Mm. But I'm, I want to. But again, there's limits to how you, you're able how you're able to do that in this world and in our culture. Understandably, that mostly, especially in the pandemic context, you got to be a doctor or a nurse or a social worker or whatever. Um, so, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have similar experiences of like just sheer number of hours of experience going through something and figuring it out, even absent a certificate or a degree or something. At a certain point, just the accumulation of that is like, oh, I can relate to what you're talking about. I've worked through solutions to that myself. I've gotten to an answer through some other means, but like just the experience brings you to the table. In yeah. A way, right. Yeah. And it, almost would be nice. I don't know if you do. I don't know if you care about this, but like that you could get some certificate <laughs> right? of like 2000 hours of hospice work or something. Yeah. You know, that was like, oh, you're okay. You're not a doctor, but you're uh, something else, you right. know, some title, you know, yeah. put some letters after your name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost like part of what, what I feel like is that for me is just the stories, you know, and which is an exciting part of getting back to some of these in-person shows it's the way I understand that context and started to really get right before the pandemic and feel the same way about it now that like there I can show up and share from these experiences. And so then like in a way somehow legitimize why I'm able to even hold the space at a general community open mic uh, that's supposed to make room for death and dying and grief and loss and the ways we're in the world and 
and are hurt by the world or um, are trying to survive the world and, and that I can come back from the prison trip and the cancer patient bedside, um, you know, some of these contexts and, and have this way, like my stories are my certificate of authenticity, mm -hmm. you know, or uh, this is how I'm a professional because I can tell you how, how, how many people I, I just came from to, to be with you. Um, and that's okay with me, you know, you know, I don't want to go back to school and I, I really honor those, those jobs, but I don't know that what I do would fit into any of them very well. And right. yeah. if I was a social worker working full time, I couldn't even do all these other things, you know? Right, um, yeah. Yeah, you'd get fired for wasting too much time <laughs> right. caring about people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I like operating outside the system in that way a little bit. It's, you know, mm. it's just these systems are tricky sometimes. And um, I like what we do. Yeah. And the ways I get to learn and create something sometimes out of nothing. Like this retreat in Ohio felt like a, a thing we'd never done before. Mm -hmm. And that it means something else is ahead that will be built from it, but that everything I've done before led to getting the chance to do that. And that's just mm -hmm. like the most wonderful thing I could ever imagine as far as an unfolding of like a career quote unquote in the world. I, I, mm -hmm. I so much rather that creative, like, um, story just emerging rather than a, like I got this job and, and, and this is how it is every day and every week because mm -hmm. it's just the system that has me here. And like I said, that's good for people, but I know that I don't work well in that context. This is how I want to do it, you know, mm -hmm. but it's taken a long time to just be like sure about it. And I still have questions. I still have a lot to learn. And that's an important part of it too, is just that like, I'm still learning in a way I'm allowed to keep learning because I'm not supposed to have all the answers because no certificate says that I should, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, well, I'm done talking. All right. Well, thank <laughs> Well, thanks everybody. Uh, thanks for listening until next time. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>